This is SCOTUS Talk, a nonpartisan podcast about the Supreme Court for lawyers and non-lawyers alike, brought to you by SCOTUS Blog. Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Thanks for joining us. Before we get started, a reminder that if you have a question about the Supreme Court, you can email us at scotustalk at scotusblog.com or leave a voicemail at 202-596-2906. On January 27th, Justice Stephen Breyer made it official. After nearly 28 years on the Supreme Court, he will step down at the end of the court's current term. We're very lucky to have with us today two reporters who've covered Breyer closely and extensively. Chris Geidner is the deputy editor for legal affairs at GRID. Chris, welcome and congrats on your new gig. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me, Amy. And Kimberly Robinson covers the court for Bloomberg Law. Kimberly, thanks for coming. It's good to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you again. It's been a minute since we were back in the courtroom. So let's start with the timing of the announcement. Some of the other justices who have stepped down recently have announced their decision to retire in the spring or the summer. Justice Breyer did it in January. Were you surprised? I I, I was. Um, I, I mean, I think that there certainly was expectation that there was a retirement that was going to be coming. And so I think the the fact of the retirement um, and ultimately what he's saying that it, it's going to be at the end of the term is not all, all that surprising. But I, I don't think that, that many of us expected our January to include a, a retirement uh, news cycle. Same for me. I think also it seems like it might have been at least the announcement, a surprise for Breyer too. And I say that because it was a good 24 hours before we had any official response from, from you know, his chambers, from the Supreme Court, or even the White House. So it seems to me like they were caught a little um, flat-footed, but that's just speculation based on, you know, when we got the official announcement. We all had our Breyer retirement pieces drafted, but the, the January session had just ended and so it was on my to-do list to update it. So it was like, oh, quick update. <laughs> it sounds like maybe Breyer had to, had to update as well. Well, yeah. And I mean, I think I, I think if there's any truth to that, of course, like we'll, we'll, we'll find out more in the future, I'm sure. But I, I think that the, the one like subtle... Uh, hint that we got that that Kimberly might be onto something is the fact that the the letter itself was dated the next day was dated the day of the announcement the 27th and not uh, the 26th when the stories came out so when the the stories came out there, there had been no formal notice at least to the White House from from Justice Breyer somebody needs to do some deep dive reporting on this so we get the full story so we think of Justice Breyer, I mean, first and foremost, when I think of him, I think of sort of the superficial, absent, the, the absent-minded professor with the three-page long hypotheticals for Canon Shanmugam. Um, but what is his legacy going to be at the end of the day? Uh, well, Amy, I think in true lawyerly fashion, I'm going to say it depends. Um, <laughs> you have a multi-factor <laughs> test. <laughs> I do. So, you know, Justice Breyer 
as you mentioned, been on the court for almost 28 years. He's been a federal judge for 40 years, and yet he consistently ranked among or, or as the least known justice in the public. And I think that's in part because he was the most junior justice for 11 years, which, okay, I'm talking to two Supreme Court reporters. So how lucky is that, that they did not have to cover a Supreme Court confirmation for 11 years? Um, uh, but... <laughs> Back to Justice Breyer, you know, I think that means he didn't have a lot of, you know, opinions, majority or dissent in these kind of big explosive cases that tend to make your legacy. So as far as the American public, I don't I don't know what his legacy will be. But for court watchers, I think it's much different. Um, you know, I think people tend to think or justices tend to look for these bright line rules to decide, you know, whether the case they're looking at falls on one side of the line or the other. And Justice Breyer is... Um, I guess more squishy. I think that's the, the legal term for it. Um, you know, wanting to give judges, you know, the discretion to look at more factors um, and, and to look at pragmatic factors in order to make mm -hmm. sure that the law is working in a way um, that works for everybody and not just providing, you know, only the right answer, but also the just answer. I mean, I, I think that the, I, I could easily just let Kimberly's answer stand. I mean, I, I think that the part of the it depends on the legacy of Breyer really comes down to like <laughs> where the court and the country go from here uh, in terms of how he's ultimately seen. I mean, I, I think that he, he could be sort of uh, one of the, the justices. I mean, particularly when you, I mean, I'm sure we'll get more into it, but I mean, when you look at like, his decision in whole women's health as like a, a justice on on the the end of a a moderate conservative court that that you had real questions in ideological cases about what the result was going to be and we're now entering an era where uh, that that's going to be far far less certain. We could be entering. I mean, people have been looking at the ages, and aside from from Justice Thomas, who's still a decade younger than than uh, Justice Breyer is now, we could be entering another an, another decade where we go without a a Supreme Court nomination after this one, and so we we could be entering a, a time period where 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 the result in a lot of cases becomes a, a known a known entity as the case is heard, and the real question is how what reasoning and how expansive it is on the conservative side. And so his, his legacy might be sort of uh, the, the last gasp of an attempt to add a compromise court. Yes, I mean, you talk about, and we'll talk about some of his major opinions, but two of them, you know, the, some, the reproductive rights may not survive even beyond his tenure on the bench. You know, mm -hmm. there was, I remember the story goes, someone asking Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, how does it feel after you leave to see some of your decisions being overturned? And he he's going to be there potentially in real time. Yeah, I think one interesting thing to think of his legacy as well is what his legacy will not be. Um, and so you mentioned there was a, a large push to get him to retire so that we didn't have see the same thing that happened with Justice Ginsburg, um, where she didn't retire under a Democratic president with a Democratic Congress. And so, you know, when she passed, it really did change the ideological makeup of the court quite a bit. Um, and you know, as 
have led to what we have now. So Briar has avoided that legacy. I don't know if that was purposely or not, but. I mean, and yet still did it in a Briar-esque way in which he, he, he didn't do it when, when people initially uh, on the left who were pushing him to retire wanted him to last year. Uh, at the end of the term, and yet sooner than those who on the right who might have hoped that he he would have held out and not given in to pressure to retire um, for maybe their own purposes of of wanting a seven two court in the future or something. So he, he, I mean, in a way, he sort of did it on his own timeline, even down to the what we started the conversation with with a January announcement. <laughs> I do think Chris made a great point. It was something I hadn't really focused on, not specific to Breyer, but the idea that I used to joke about someone being young for a Supreme Court justice, but Justice Thomas is 73, Justice Alito is 71. And then you start to get into the justices will all be in their 60s, 50s, and depending on who the president nominates potentially, in their 40s. And so, as Chris said, it, it could be after this one quite a long time before we have another nomination and, and confirmation. Pick, if you had to pick a, an opinion, either an influential opinion or an opinion that is particularly Breyer esque, what would you choose? I think for me, uh, the opinion that will always stick out to me is his dissent in Glossop versus Gross. <laughs> I had to talk before you, Chris, because I didn't want you to steal this from me. <laughs> wow. It really wow. moves in quickly. Wow. Okay, Chris, you can have it. It's all, I have a backup of you. If you would like it, go ahead. Go, go ahead. We'll, we'll end up just discussing them together. <laughs> <laughs> so this was a death penalty case about uh, method of execution. And um, Breyer and the other three liberals at the time ended up in dissent. And this one sticks out to me. I think we were all there in the press room when the opinion was being handed down. But for listeners, normally uh, the majority opinion writer will read from their opinion from the bench, kind of giving a summary of what it's about. In big cases and important cases, the dissenter will also read from their opinion. This one had not just two or three, but four justices who read from the bench. And in particular, Justice Scalia read from his concurring opinion, just to respond to Breyer's dissent. And I think it was notable because it's an opinion that says, you know, rather than kind of tinkering with the death penalty, kind of one issue at a time, it's really time for the court to look at it as a whole and decide whether or not it violates the constitution, you know, completely. And I think it's important because it, it's really one of those dissents that's for the future. It really lays out kind of a blueprint. And I think it'll be helpful, not just for lawyers who are in litigation, but maybe even for, you know, legislatures who are rethinking, we've seen a lot of them rethinking kind of the death penalty. So I think it is a dissent, but I think it will be something that's um, important going forward. Sorry, Chris. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I mean, I, I, that, that had been mine and I had, I had picked it because I, I thought that no, nobody else would, would pick a dissent. Um, but I, I, I mean, the, the reason why I thought it was important is, um, particularly because 
in light of where we are now, I think it shows how differently he was thinking about the court and where it was going. And obviously this was, I mean, this dissent had come down before before Justice Scalia had died. And that that sort of had led into this, this moment on the court in 2016, where it, it really did look like the, the gloss of dissent could be leading toward a majority. There were some, some decisions during that interim eight justice period where even the chief justice on like stays of execution seemed to be going along with the liberals for purposes of at least putting executions on hold. And I think what we've seen in, in the period since when the Trump administration went forward with, with its execution spree and some of, some of the other cases since, we've sort of seen this real, <laughs> like, <laughs> diminished view from the left of the possibility of them having any influence in changing the outcomes of these cases, and to, to the point of whether or not them writing dissents in death penalty cases e- even is, is worth, worth their time uh, or energy. It seems like they're sort of like picking a case here and there when they want to make a point. And, and so I think that his decision, like particularly like the, the areas of, of how he thought the court and other courts should be looking at the cases uh, will stand. And then we've already brought it up, but I, I mean, the whole women's health decision, I, I think will for, for now <laughs> through the end of the term stand, but also uh, after that will stand as sort of, it, it, it's still not, I, I'd love to hear both of your thoughts, but like, I, we don't talk about it as like Roe Casey, whole women's health. It didn't really change things, but it it, it, it did um, in that like we, we got this like strong reaffirmation that that again at this time when I, I think the the liberal justices thought that things were gonna stay as they were or get better for them really will stand as sort of like a, a high watermark for trying to stop the, these non-abortion restrictions themselves, because remember that was about like what restrictions were being put on providers. And, and, and now we're at a point where the, the opposite is going to be coming forward in cases. And he's going to have this, this majority opinion along with, with June medical as sort of like the, the last two cases standing pretty much. And he actually had, you know, for someone who wasn't the senior justice among the liberals until 2020, he actually got assigned some pretty good opinions. You know, Whole Women's Health, June Medical, Stenberg versus Carhartt, right. you know, some of, some of the religion cases. When you look back at, at, you know, he was there for 28 years. And so on the one hand, you'd expect to see some major opinions, but sort of given where he was as the junior justice for 11 years, it's actually pretty good. But yeah. it also does. I mean, I did, I did look through all of the, the, the list and it, I mean, 
you're you're being a little nice too, Amy. <laughs> I mean, the the fact that like when other when 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 Ginsburg died, when Stevens retired, the way that we looked at it, they, there really isn't sort of the same like body of work um, that that we point to in terms of of his majority opinion legacy in particular. But that's one thing I think when we when we heard Breyer talk about um, why he wasn't retiring last year, it wasn't you know, he wasn't saying, well, I want to write my last big opinions. It was that he wanted to use his influence behind the scenes. And so, you know, I think that's perfectly, you know, analogous to what his legacy might be is this more kind of behind the scenes influence with the justices, given his long tenure and, you know, his particular character, um, rather than, you know, what he, what he was able to write for the public. No, I actually put a pin in that because I want to talk about that uh, in a couple of minutes when we talk about, you know, potential new nominee and Chris, you've written a little bit about this. Quickly, any memorable lines? Like for me, one of his most memorable lines was one that didn't actually appear in his dissent in the Parents Involved case in which the court struck down a public school program that tried to maintain integration by taking students' race into account. And in his dissent from the bench, uh, this was the case in which the chief justice, in his opinion, said, something along the lines of the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. And Justice Breyer's dissent that he read, but, but not actually anywhere in his dissent, said it's not often in the law that so few have so quickly changed so much, um, which was really you know a lot of emotion for somebody we don't think of as being particularly emotional um, there was also in 2007, he was talking uh, primarily about, he was talking about the substitution of Roberts for Rehnquist and in particular Alito for O'Connor. And when you look back on it, it was 15 years ago, you know, at the time, it seemed like the court was really moving to the right. And you look back on it, and you think, boy, you didn't, you know, they were just getting started. Well, and I mean, you add to that, given his like, true like <laughs> dejection from Bush v. Gore that, I mean, he probably still had a, a, a part of, of his element that, that, uh, that those justices were a result of that decision ultimately. It is not often in the law that so few have so quickly changed so much. Well, I guess I think, Amy, the one that you, you picked up on and um, parents involved, I think really shows how, you know, Breyer really looked forward a lot. Um, and I think another kind of part of an, an actual opinion, this one made it in an opinion, really showed, um, you know, Breyer and all of his Breyerness was in that abortion case, Denver versus Carhartt, where right off the bat, he talks about, you know, what's at stake here and kind of he goes through this paragraph about how, you know, Americans are really divided on this issue and here's why they're divided. Here's what one side thinks, here's what the other side thinks. And I think that's really how he looked at the law, you know, um, as I said, you know, when we were talking about his legacy, trying to make the law work for everyone um, and making it clear he understands the stakes, you know, in, in these abortion cases and all the others. So that's one of his lines that's really memorable to me. Um, although of course his most memorable lines will always be from oral argument. 
Well, yeah, and I I was going to say um, it, it's not a, a line from an opinion, but one of the things whenever I would like talk with people about like the importance of attending arguments is one of the things that it doesn't even show up on transcripts, um, let alone in an opinion, is the importance to me of watching when he would be talking with Thomas at arguments. Now this is of course before the pandemic and before we, we had this regular situation where Justice Thomas was asking questions, but like the, there was this regular practice where you would see uh, Justice Breyer and Justice Thomas talking during arguments. And then all of a sudden, like Breyer would look in a, a book or something and then he'd lean over and he'd ask a question. And I, I'd say probably like 50% of those times, like they were like actually questions that Thomas wanted to ask. And that that like Breyer was like thinking these, these are, are, are good to potentially help. Like he would obviously like reframe them and stuff, but it was like him doing his Briar thing of like trying to have some influence behind the scenes. Um, and this was right in front of us, but again, it was something that like doesn't show up on transcripts, doesn't, there's no real way to quantify that, that impact or effect, but it was, it was definitely something that like over time became to me one of the more important things about watching arguments. I'm going to really miss watching him ask a question or make a comment and then look around at his colleagues to try and sort of like see how his questions or comments have landed with them. <laughs> did yeah. I do a good job? Right. Like, right. You, you got it. You got it. Did I do it? Are you guys He's... following my um, <laughs> grown up tomato children that attacked Boston <laughs> hypothetical? Do you guys get where I'm going here? Um, which was a real hypothetical, actually. <laughs> But he's just hands thing. down the most expressive justice on the bench. Yeah. Like not like not even close. I mean, I think we are seeing others starting to to come into to that. I mean, certainly more and more, I think, from 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 Justice Sotomayor uh, on the bench. Um, Although she's not on the bench right now. Right. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> on, the, on the virtual bench. <laughs> the virtual bench. Well, I haven't been at the at the court. We we should say for people, I haven't been at our. But when she was person, there, wearing so. her mask. Yes. Are you hanging out with Justice Sotomayor? Is that what it is? You guys are <laughs> listening to arguments yeah. together. I, I show my vaccine check at the door. <laughs> Do you wear a um, mask? No. Uh, <laughs> Let's talk yes, quickly <laughs> about potential nominees. Um, do we think the short list, Katanji Brown-Jackson, Leander Kruger, Michelle Childs, is there anyone else that you're hearing on the short list? I mean, that seems like a short list plus one, right? Um, seems like Childs seems to be uh, on that list, but probably further back. Although, you know, things tend to change as, as you get some lobbying going on at the White House, and she certainly has some pretty strong lobbying going on, particularly from uh, Representative uh, Clyburn um, out of South Carolina, where she sits. So, but to me, so far, the one I've heard the most on is, is Jackson, and I think she has yeah. the benefit, too, of having one, two, three confirmations in the Senate, right? For the sentencing commission for the DC circuit. And then that's right. Um, also for her district court seat. So, well, um, and then you add, I mean, obviously the fact that she's 
in the position of having had Republican support just just on her most recent confirmation. That's right. She, did she pick up three? Three. three? Right. Yeah. yeah. It makes me wonder because I think for a long time, people have thought that Leandra Kruger out of the California Supreme Court has been kind of on the top of that list. And then, you know, there was there was reporting that she was asked to um, be the solicitor general and declined um, twice, I guess, um, our friends at the National Law Journal reported. And I just wonder what effect that's going to have on, you know, the White House's choice now that she, we do not have a Senate confirmation for her. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I, I mean, I've been talking about this with some people and it just, I mean, nobody has told me affirmatively that like that hurts her, but like, I can't imagine that I can't imagine that it helps <laughs> first. And I can't imagine that it it's not that like, that that wasn't effectively uh, an attempt at a trial run that they would have had Jackson and Kruger having had confirmations in the prior year. And that, that would have put probably council's office feeling a lot more comfortable about things that would have put Office of Legislative Affairs in a, a lot more comfortable position. Uh, and so it, it I mean, it, it just seems like one of those, those things that like, she might've seen it as like, is it worth it for me to give up my seat on the California Supreme Court for the SG's office for a potential chance at a Supreme Court nomination? That's not worth it. But now the, the opposite side of that is it, puts her at a slight disadvantage from where she might have otherwise been at had she had she done so. I think I mean I think that's a, an important point. I think that the fact of being the SG standing alone wouldn't necessarily do that much. And you know, you potentially could could take some sort of make some sort of misstep that could make it harder for you to right. be a Supreme Court nominee. But on the other hand, just and who would have thought two years ago that this would be a thing? But the, the fact of having gone through the vetting and the confirmation process makes you a more attractive candidate at a time where they really need to make sure they get somebody confirmed before November of 2022. Yeah, I mean, I just recently watched Jackson's confirmation hearing for the D.C. Circuit again, and she was even asked about being a front runner for uh, the Supreme Court. And it, it really seemed like a lot of the questions she got would be questions that the Supreme Court nominee would get. And I think, you know, she was able to show, you know, not only did she win Republican support, but she can handle these kinds of questions. And I think, you know, to, to Chris's point, even if it's not a negative for Kruger, I think it would be a big plus for, for Jackson. All right. I want to talk before we go, I want to talk about one thing that has nothing necessarily to do with Justice Breyer's retirement, um, except that Massgate sort of died down because of Justice Breyer's retirement announcement. It's true. <laughs> um, but Justice Gorsuch is going to be speaking at a Florida Federalist Society meeting. So we hear, and he could be talking about Justice Breyer's retirement announcement or mass to the Supreme Court, but we won't know that because there's no press access. This, you know, in 2022, after all of the kerfluffle that we've had recently about press access to the justices' speeches, I mean, 
obviously it's something that is intentional. The, the court, Justice Gorsuch, know that this is something that the press is concerned about and he's doing it anyway. Yeah, I mean, it's, well, it's, it's Massgate Redux. I mean, it, it is, it, it is like clear that Justice Gorsuch is a lifetime tenured federal judge and he's already been appointed to the highest court. So he doesn't need to worry about a higher court appointment. And he, he is now, um, to, to use my general phrase, what's the Supreme Court going to do? They do what they want. Um, he's now taking that as a, an individual one justice policy as well. And I think that is probably like, regardless of the specifics of what the actual issues were with the Massgate reporting, like to, to the detriment of at least what we know to be over our experience with Chief Justice Roberts, his general institutional protection in, interests. And it, it just seems like that is from his behavior over the past, well, like, two months, at least, isn't Justice Gorsuch's primary concern. I think kind of along with that, there was, I mean, press access to the speeches is nothing new. Um, It's kind of something we've been fighting for for a long time. Just even like knowing when there's a speech is is hard to do. But we have seen like Justice Amy Coney Barrett uh, had closed press access to one of her speeches and seemed like um, because of some pressure actually opened it up and we were able, was that not true? No, she didn't actually open it up. We only knew it because she didn't live stream the event. Is that right? There, there were people they were pressed in there. person yeah. there, mm-hmm. but like we, like we couldn't watch it. Right. Um, as opposed to the Alito one <laughs> that we could. Right. But, you know, here, I think what's really notable about this is that Justice Gorsuch isn't the only person speaking. He's speaking with former Vice President Mike Pence, Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor, and others. Um, His is the only part of the program that's going to be closed to the press. And it's just so in your face um, to me that, I don't know, I mean, right, but he wrote that, he wrote that book, or, you know, he said during confirmation hearings, I'm my own judge, I kind of do what I want. So he's showing him us that. All right. Well, yeah. I mean, this is this is the 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 course we've got, and this is. I mean, the the. I mean, we've talked about this before, Amy. But like, I mean, this this issue of of court access, the the fact that we still don't have like a solid answer of whether like live streaming is going to stay once the the court is actually open and in person, which should be like a non-starter and obvious because they've succeeded at doing it even with this like mixed version now. Um, I mean, they should have had it before the pandemic. Exactly. So, I mean, it, it, it is part and parcel of bigger issues, but it's also, I mean, the fact that this is fitting in with I think the reason why some of the other speeches have had a a harder time with staying closed is that they've been at like colleges, even if they're private colleges, like eh, probably doesn't look good for an uh, an institute of of higher education to be having secret events 
Whereas this is a Federalist Society event. And so like they don't have that same institutional pressure that like Notre Dame would have. All right, folks, if you're going to the Florida Federalist Society dinner, you've got voice memos just like the rest of us. Send us, <laughs> send us the tapes. Kimberly Robinson, Chris Geidner, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks a lot. Thank you. That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. Thanks for joining us, and thanks to our production team. Katie Barlow, Eleanor Erskine, Angie Goh, and James Ramoser. 